It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Before we dig into this week's program, another dip into the listener mailbag. Claude, a retired BMW and automotive mechanic in Quebec, wrote in with a very thorough list of 247 mechanical design flaws. Now, we don't have time to list them all, but he brings up one we've not heard, and most airhead riders will agree with this. That is not shielding the wires underneath the timing cover. That makes you have to disconnect the battery every time you take the timing cover off, and that can lead to shorting the diode board and sparks flying everywhere. So, Claude, great point. We all agree with that. Probably an oversight from the engineers. I agree. He also sent along some photos of his Paralever GSPD with over 500,000 kilometers. Now, I'm going to save you the conversion calculation here. That's a little over 310,000 miles. The bike looks absolutely amazing. He's customized and reworked many components on the bike to his liking, addressing some of the design flaws he found and some that we've discussed on the program. Most impressive, however, was the custom-built dash he put on this Paris Dakar. I can only describe it in this format as the most unique and handsomely designed airhead gauge display I've ever seen. If you're on Adventure Rider, he's posted pics under the moniker Worn Out. And if you're on Boxerworks, another forum, he posts as GSPD. So invite you all to check out just a spectacular dash arrangement he came up with. I think you'll agree. It's truly a work of electrical and engineering art. Remember to drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Be sure to leave a review, especially if you're listening to us on the Apple podcast format. Your reviews go a long way to ensuring this program continues to grow. As regular listeners know, I bought a 1975 R90S a few years ago. Back then, in researching the bike and its unique aspects, I came across some postings online by a fella named Mark Spittler. I was not familiar with him. I dropped him a line, led to a few email exchanges regarding Painter's general repair protocol on the 90S. Little did I know, I'd stumbled across a very well-versed and experienced mechanic and airhead enthusiast. Mark grew up in Southern California, right in the heart of the hot rod scene, living next to a famous drag racer of all things. you hear about that right here at the top of our interview. His interest and knowledge in the 247 runs deep, as you'll hear in our conversation. It's Mark Spittler on the Airhead 247 podcast. Uh, we're on the line with Mark Spittler. And Mark, thanks for taking some time to talk to us today. Uh, a lot of folks will know you from your just wonderful and thoroughly detailed uh, restorations, specifically on R90s, uh, R90Ss. The first thing I want to uh, ask you about 
and you had sort of sent me some information in our pre-interview chats. You've owned a lot of motorcycles over the years, obviously. Tell me about uh, the first Airhead BMW you purchased, and what was the appeal to you back then? Okay. Well, my, I grew up, my father basically was a uh, uh, an engineer, and uh, he basically built Offenhauser Miller-type motors for uh, racing back in the in the 40s and 50s. So uh, he was involved in circle track racing and uh, Offenhauser-type motors. And um, he was a very astute engineer, and he taught me everything I know. And uh, always opened my life up. He was also a motorcycle owner and motorcycle rider. Uh, his interest was uh, something I just kind of inherited. Plus, I grew up in a neighborhood where I basically uh, I had two neighbors. One of them, uh, interestingly enough, both famous. One of them was actually uh, a man named. Uh, uh, I my memory here for a minute. Yeah, that's fine. Basically, was yeah. Um, he was a drag racer. And he's uh, he, he was involved in California drag racing like that, and um, and also uh, another fellow who was uh, involved in um, in drag racing at the time, and so I was always around cars and midgets, and I I grew up driving and racing midgets until I was in my teens, and then I finally stopped doing that. So. Anyway, my interest was always there. I was exposed to a lot of this stuff mechanically, too. Let me jump in and ask you. So this was, I'm guessing, mid, late, mid-60s, somewhere in California? Yeah. The man was Don Gartlitz. That's what I was going to say. Big Daddy Don Gartlitz. There you go. Yeah, he he was on my paper route. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. How about that? And he had a house with a very large garage, and his his niece who I went to school with her. One day she invited me to go over and meet her uncle, and he always opened a shop up in Lesco in there, and he got us into the drag races and stuff all the time. Pretty interesting guy to have as a uh, a neighbor. Wow, no kidding. So that was a real uh, gearhead, motorhead neighborhood. Yeah, and he was very, very heavily sponsored by by. Uh, General Motors and a couple other people. So it was neat being in that pioneer time. The other thing, too, is uh, John McLaughlin, uh, Steve McLaughlin's father, they were neighbors also. So I grew up with John, and uh, he was always going along. We'd go along to the races all the time, and his dad and his uncle at the time was all involved in that stuff. So I was exposed to that heavily and had uh, opportunities to ride on racetracks and stuff like that in Southern California, the old Willow Springs track. So I was always kind of around this stuff. And so I'm guessing then maybe the first airhead you saw might not have necessarily been in the 70 to 95 range, but maybe a slash two then? Uh, well, my dad had a couple of BMWs. Yeah, he had, had several R69s and stuff like that. He liked to work on them. He would work on them for clients too, occasionally to help them out and things like that. But it was strictly a favor type thing. What's interestingly enough is um, my very first serious on course onto a motorcycle track is I, I grew up around English bikes, and quite frankly, I, I don't like English bikes at all. I'm German, you know, and I've had too many bikes that just they weren't very reliable. Uh, but what I did do is in 1968, Norton brought up the Commando Fastbacks. And uh, since I knew John McLaughlin pretty well, and I was, interesting enough, about a mile from where John's shop was in Duarte, was BSA Western, had built their Western distributorship. And uh, I got to know most of the people down there at the, 
at the area, Dean Romero and a few other guys that all worked for BSA Western. And uh, so I had access to, to meeting people like that. Anyway, I, I was able to buy one of the very first Norton Commando um, fastbacks that was uh, sold to the dealership. And uh, I realized the the, uh, the bike had a lot going for it, had a good torque um, and uh, excellent power delivery and pretty damn good suspension. It had crappy brakes. Of course, everything had crappy brakes then. So I bought it, and I put about 150 miles on it, and I ordered a Lockheed front disc brake, which they actually used the parts development for that as a cell kit that they sold to other people but i put it on the bike and uh, put about a fast 250 miles on it i took it to willow springs and uh, i borrowed an amateur license from i won't tell you who and i uh, i went out and i ran the race i got second place and i wasn't really trying <laughs> it was amazing how good it was so it showed me that modern motorcycles had that ability and norton motor was pretty good uh, torque delivery wise and the suspension was reasonable too but uh, quite frankly it was English and they did have reliability problems and um, that led to a nitrous oxide system I put on it and I kept screwing around with things like that but the BMW that I decided to buy basically was um, I bought a brand new BMW uh, R90S from Champion Motors in Costa Mesa it was one of the last ones they had in stock and I bought the motorcycle and I brought it home and I took it all apart and I sent the motor up to uh, San Jose BMW and the guy that I knew up there, Mr. Lear, uh, he basically blueprinted the motor for me and sent it back. And uh, I still own that motorcycle. Well, let me jump in and ask. So if I remember when we were corresponding via email, that was a 76 model? Correct. Okay. Yeah, very late 76. And so just to clarify then, you bought that new, and then the first thing you did was systematically dismantle it. <laughs> yeah, and that's just to start because there was a lot of weak pots. Of course, the brakes were better than the earlier bikes, but uh, they needed improvement. And I got hooked up with a guy named Matt Capri, and he and I were uh, manufacturing, and, and I was doing a lot of the engineering work for the Luftmeister accessories. One of the first things we did was develop me and I'd iron replacement discs. And uh, in essence, just about every more antiquated now parts of the bike needed to be upgraded, and uh, at least for high performance. And if you take an older airhead like that, you can do these things. And they basically keep the bike modern enough that they're real interesting to ride now. Although a lot of those parts aren't available anymore. So tell me about uh, what the engine build. I know you still have that bike, if I recall correctly. So yeah, yeah. So you know, you hundred fifty thousand on it. Wow. So you say you blueprinted the motor. So maybe just a few details on what some of the the changes were, uh, in particular on that bike uh, for uh, performance and uh, and those type of things. Well, the, the most important thing was to get the horsepower as much as I could that would be reliable in the street long term and would match the basic super bikes that were being built by Butler Smith. And I, I knew the guys at Butler Smith, and Matt had a lot of experience in hot rodding too. So one of the things I did is I, by taking a the engine and changing things around, you could get better performance characteristics and more horsepower out of it. And uh, what I did is I took the engine out of that bike originally and I put it aside and I took a, a brand new 750 slash six motor 
and which has smaller barrels, 750, and I had it bored out uh, so that the cylinder liners are center. At um, basically, uh, you end up with better heat transfer through the cylinder walls, and then the heads uh, on that. I took uh, the first set of heads were a set of early heads from um, from BMW, and I had them bench loaded by Jerry Branch, and uh, and I had a second set of heads later on R100. 77 R100S heads, which were probably the best flowing and, and highest tuned heads from the factory, and had those bench flowed, and uh, replaced all the valves with uh, high quality stainless steel valves from the Southern California hot rodding companies that produce these things. And uh, what that gives you is much better breathing. Uh, Jerry's branches uh, was one of the few people around who owned a, a flow bench. He actually built it. He kind of developed that whole technology for a lot of them for hot rodders too, and he was a friend of uh, of uh, uh, drag racing people. Anyway, I still got those heads, wow. and uh, yeah, and I got rid of the uh, carburetors on them and put Makuni's flat slide roller slide carburetors, which I still own on that bike too, which uh, are, are probably as trouble free as they ever get. Uh, the Lordos would deliver power, but they were kind of uh, iffy. And uh, they were a lot of maintenance to them, but the Japanese carburetors coming along within a few years were much, much better. Yeah, and those are still uh, popular modification uh, for airheads uh, today. Those you can still buy them. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, you, bet. you can and, still buy them. And then, what about your cam profile? Was that changed at all on that bike? No, you know something. Um, everybody wants to go put 308 cams yeah. and stuff like that and change cams around. But you know something, the stock camshaft and that it works really, really well all around for street riding and general use. And the guys would overcam a motor, and you got issues with. Uh, well, it, it has a tendency to idle rough. Uh, they're not as smooth. And, and the Makunis are actually dedicated race carburetors, but they're extremely civilized. And they work fine. And there's as trouble fee as you'll ever get. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean that you bring up a good point there. Uh, for a, a a bike that you can reliably ride on the street, a daily rider, and also uh, you know take to the track on occasion, uh, it sounds like that that regular pro cam profile is, is the way to go. It is, and it's true of cars too. Guys over carburetor them, but they, or they, or they overtune the, uh, the camshafts too radical and too much duration, and so they don't idle very well. So they pollute and they smell bad at the hamburger shop. But you know something? They don't necessarily run good. The secret. What what kind of converted me is when I was uh, in 1963. I got married, and my wife had a horrible. Her dad had bought her a Jaguar new, and I hated it. It quit on a trip once, and I had to basically get rid of it. But I bought a brand-new Oldsmobile Starfire Coupe, and it had a 390, uh, 393 engine in it, very smooth, nice idling, very, very torquey engine. And I, I started to really appreciate what a nice torquey engine could be like. And so the torque delivery on a Norton was extremely nice, too. Well, the BMW and R90... IDS is all in our 90 series bikes have that ability because the camshaft is just just perfect for all around use, and uh, if the carburetion and a little bit of head work, uh, pocket porting and stuff like that, really brings them alive. And then uh, they don't need a real strung out motor. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And any uh, any changes to the exhaust or headers or just stock units there? 
You know, I, I years ago I hooked up with a man who owned uh, basically um, Ebco Engineering in Ohio. I was working back there for a company. Uh, I've, I've got quite a bit of education, and, and I, I used to develop products. I've got about I still actively. I've, I've got about I think twenty two patents. Some of them are still active, but uh, I got to know a lot of people that were more technical and. Uh, what you can do then is you get the right connections and you get help and you can you can get things that are more practical rather than radical. And uh, I always liked the cool mufflers. They're three hundred eight stainless. They're extremely well made. They don't have any seams in them, and um, they built motorcycle mufflers and and custom mufflers for a lot of people for a lot of years. The the man who did all this is dead now, and uh, he was trying to sell the company some years ago, and I I had no idea or I had no interest in getting involved in something like that. But its I don't know if the company's still in business. And Stay in Tune made some nice mufflers too, but the Ebcos and another muffler called the Oregon Silencer were all developed in the western United States, and they were pretty nice mufflers. But I've always liked the Ebcos, the sound, the quality. They never corrode, and they're just beautiful. Let me ask you about, you mentioned something there uh, about your background and some of your other interests and in work. Just tell me, I'm curious, what's a, you know, what do you do otherwise besides uh, twisting wrenches on bikes and how does that tie into what you do with motorcycles? Well, I'm 77 now, so I, I haven't actually worked in a business since uh, well, I was about 57, 58. I, I basically was involved in the aerospace business early. I, well, before that, when I was in college, I worked for a, a water cooling company that made cooling towers for chemical plants around the United States and uh, processing. And so it, that was uh, more along civil engineering. And uh, I have two degrees in, in mechanical engineering. I also had uh, an opportunity to go to work for an aerospace company. We built satellite tape recorders that were reel-to-reel, and uh, they were built for uh, – the United States government, some of it was classified, so I, I really shouldn't talk about it. But uh, basically, these recorders would go on a satellite that would orbit the Earth, and then they would record information on each pass or revolution, and then they would dump this information back. These were extremely early uh, technology, and uh, most people didn't know about it, but it wow. would take about uh, it'd take about uh, six months to build one of these recorders, and they would cost them probably a quarter million dollars, and I got to go to a launches where they actually, at Vandenberg Air Force Base, put these things into orbit. So it's kind of neat. Wow. Oh, wow. What a neat, oh, that's an amazing background. And I I think that answers my question I'm going to go into here uh, and explains a lot. You're, obviously, your background uh, in engineering and aerospace ties in well with restoration work on motorcycles, uh, particularly the, R, the R90Ss you've done um, you know, what, and seeing a lot of the bikes you've done, some of the pictures you shared with me and stuff, um, there's just a enormous amount of detail, uh, I've seen in your work and it stands to reason that comes from your background and, uh, and what you did in other things. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. 
Boxer 2 valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. As a, as a restoration specialist, I guess I could call it for these bikes, What's the appeal in the R90S to you? How, how, how have you continued to gravitate towards that bike? Well, it's funny. The first R90S I actually saw was in, uh, my, at, a, at a motorcycle show. And I, was in, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Butler Smith when they were in uh, New Jersey. And I saw one of the very first early bikes. Steve McLaughlin was, uh, was getting one of his race bikes built, too, by Rob North in, in Northern well, in California at the time. So I saw these bikes before they were actually available to the public. Um, what's interesting is, you know, when the 90S came out, it was an extremely expensive, it was the most expensive motorcycle in production. Yeah, what was the list What was the list price back then, if you recall? First year was 42.50, which was a lot of money. That was car money. And a lot of people didn't have money for that. The kind of people who could afford them were people who were well-heeled and, and had the uh, interest in them. Um, me being German, I had a, obviously, I'm German, and I always lean towards high-quality components, <clears throat> high-quality machinery, and uh, the cars and the bikes both. So when I saw one, I, uh, I, by, it was a strange occurrence. I actually met uh, Hans Moos, and he had uh, been working in the American automobile business doing interiors and things like that. That's right. And he got bored, and uh, he he actually was hired by BMW to do interiors there at their car division, and he asked to um, be transferred uh, kind of indirectly. It broke the rules, but he ended up doing uh, some projects, including the R90S and the R80TS, which I one of those I bought new, and um, he, uh, he he was a really brilliant, talented guy. But he, he he didn't like management much, and so he liked to go around the corner and do things differently. But they let him do it. Good thing too, because otherwise, we'd probably if they hadn't developed the 90s when they did, BMW was so close to going out of the motorcycle business. The basically upper office said, you know, we're going to shut that whole motorcycle division down if you can't start, come up with something that, that puts us back in in a play. So the 90S did that. And the 90S was unique in the fact it had so many unique features and styling and ideas and how the bike was laid out and how you sat on the bike and just things going for it. But it was, uh, first year was 4,200. Then they went up to 4,400. And um, I think by 76, they were 50 something in that range. Wow. And so to put that in perspective, uh, you mentioned that was car money. So. 
back in those yeah. days, you know, what com- what was a comparable automobile you would have purchased for that money, maybe? Um, that Oldsmobile was a Cadillac money. Yeah. Yeah, and I had it 10 years, and it was my wife's car. You know, it was a monster. I, I put uh, dual quads on it. Uh, they had a package you could put on, and uh, I actually went to San Fernando drag strip. I have a picture of it. We were down there, and they brought in the very first, not even available for sale from GM, the first GTOs that were developed, and uh, Pontiac. Uh, and th- it, they were running that car at the strip there, and it was a four-speed. Uh, the Olds was an automatic, and I was running with a half a second of that car all day long wow. with air conditioning on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the AC running. <laughs> That's great. It was funny. You know, so I got a high, high appreciation for General Motors products, too. Yeah, yeah. But, no. um, you know, nobody at the time thought it, thought much about it. If you could buy an IDS, you just thought it was a really nice, beautiful motorcycle. And the kind of guys that could drive them, they didn't beat them up. They, they, they got extremely good service because the guys could afford them. We put them in the shop, and BMW has always been predatory on their services. And they, they rode them, and then for one reason or another, they moved on to either something more developed as it came along, like maybe Z1s and things like that. And a lot of the 90Ss stayed with their original owners to some point, and they got passed on, and then naturally they got hot rod. And that's where a lot of them took damage and weren't maintained right or modified the wrong way or, or just they they wrecked them. A lot of them just, they didn't handle too well initially, and that's where suspension and better brakes came in. And um, anyway, a lot of them got crashed. And when they did, uh, they may or may not have been brought back to life. So um, what I did is I wrote a, I still have it. I wrote a document basically tells you how to inspect a motorcycle, specifically BMW, but it would apply to any motorcycle. If you're going to buy one, what do you look for? Yeah. And, and that's all the points. And I've given that out to a lot of people. And so they don't ever look at a bike at night in the dark. That's about it. You know, first rule. And uh, what to look for and what to expect and how to uh, evaluate the motorcycle, basically, for resale or for, for buying it, either for just to restore it or just to ride it safely. Yeah, and let's, let's, let, I want to ask you a little bit more about your, your restoration work. Uh, you mentioned you've kind of uh, phased out of that aspect of, of what you do now. Uh, so when did you really start in earnest uh, specializing in R90S uh, restoration? When did that become a thing for you? Oh, probably what drove it is, is when I was like, uh, I was probably about 22 a friend of my dad's gave me the very. He gave me this bike. It was 1948 Francis Barnett with a Vilders motor in it, uh, two-stroke, and uh, basically said, "Here, it was just an old bike, but it, it was just parked a long time, hadn't been damaged or anything." So I spent about two and a half years, took it all apart. Uh, most of it I already understood and everything, and uh, found most of the parts out of Europe, and I completely rebuilt it, and and I had photographed it and everything. And, uh, and I basically eventually sold it. Well, I put all this time into it, including even finding a, a manual for it and, and hand stenciling on the side of the tank to write, there's no decals or anything for it, make it look exactly the way it did from the factory. And when I sold it, I only made, I don't know, not very much money. I maybe made 1200 bucks on the deal. Now, if it would have been the, the second bike I ever rebuilt was an Indian super cheap last year, they made it which I started out paying a lot of money for it. But the, the Francis Barnett gave me maybe $1,200 profit in the whole thing. 
the Indian was a whole different animal. If I had it today, I'd probably get a hundred grand for it. Yeah, right. So it's a certain amount of time that you put into a product or, or into the project, and it, you want to you want to get the most out of it in the end. At the same time, you want it done right, and you want to bring it back to how it looked when it was new and respect that. So what I was doing was basically doing this just as a hobby. It's always been a hobby. I never did it for money. I keep track of everything I do. I detail, completely photograph the bikes when I first get them. As I, all the work I do, I take photographs so I can show a client, here's what I've done, here's, here's pictures of it, and, and try to always keep it, the, all the parts that came on the bike with it or replace them with exactly the correct OEM part for the year and everything, even the casting marks on the casting pieces. The more originally you make it, the more true it is to its spirit and the more correct it is. Yeah, yeah. And more valuable. Yeah, yeah indeed. Most, most, most clients respect that. So, yeah, so the, fir- the getting back to the 90S here then, so what was, um, what was the, f- the first one in that? Pro- I know you've done some other ones because I saw a few photos, I think, and some other folks you work with on some different airheads and stuff, but uh, specifically, mm-hmm specifically on the 90s when when was the first you know sort of first frame off restoration you did well the first one is actually wasn't a 90s it was that green bike that i showed you there yeah that nice slash five and and that one i got a a guy who was quite frankly did drugs and he always needed drug money and he he was buying up bikes that he'd find once in a while and he had a, a little house out in riverside california and I went and visited him one day, and, and he, he showed me these bikes, and that green, uh, uh, let's see, it was an R. I think it was an R75. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a 70, it was a 70, R75, and it was, uh, and they, it must have been a 73. And anyway, he he sold it to me. It was pretty forlorn, one cylinder hanging. We saw a picture of it there. Yeah, yeah. So I parked it for a while. I parked it for a while, and uh, but um, I, I knew all the bike was there. He'd taken part of it apart, but all the bike was there. It just needed to be complete. It was parked. It's like put away wet, as they say on a horse. Yeah. And and so I, I basically and I hated the curry color, so I I started searching all I got everything I needed to get her, including locating the paint, and I spent about a year and a half on it, and it came out really nice. But quite frankly, I never liked those bikes. Uh, the kickstarters don't work very well on them, um, and it, it had all of the issues that went along with that particular version of the bike from 1970 1973. And uh, anyway, I, eventually I found a. Uh, a guy who bought it from me, and he lives in San Francisco, and he has another bike I built for him too. But that was the first one I ever went completely through. Matter of fact, I took it down to Del Mar, uh, raced there's a uh, horse racetrack in Del Mar, California, and they had a show down there, and I put it on display down there, and I got an award on it. So I felt pretty tiffed on that. And but I realized what I built in the end, it wasn't. I didn't enjoy riding it. It was it was going backwards and. Uh, and then I realized that the 90s was the only way to go. But the new ones were pretty pricey, mm-hmm. and I didn't buy one right away. The one I have, I still have that I bought new from Champion. I paid premium money for it. It was one of the last ones they had. And um, but I knew, but I knew the guys down there. Uh, Wayne Rainey worked at that shop. You ever heard of him? No, no. Tell me about him. Wayne Rainey is a world-class motorcycle rider who was crashed at Laguna Seca and has been in a wheelchair ever since. And he was a mechanic down there 
at that shop. And uh, he was, uh, you know, raced with all the t- top racers, Kenny Roberts and the rest of them. Wayne Rainey, look him up. I will. I'll check it out. No, I'm not from not familiar with him. So yeah, that I saw that f- picture of that motorcycle, and unfortunately, we're in an audio format here, so you know we can't show it. But uh, yeah, that was a long wheelbase slash five, and I, I guess it was in the Nuremberg green uh, paint scheme. Yeah, it's called. Um, well, let's see. My my wife nicknamed it Kermy, like a frog. <laughs> like the frog, actually. right? <laughs> but it was a beautiful bike. She cried when I sold it, but um, it was it was pretty well. I didn't do any cheating. It was basically dead stock. I didn't mess with anything on it. Um, it was put together just as it came from the factory. And I realized, even though the bike was weak at the time, it was their first effort from '71 to '73. And then they got serious, and they had to, as I explained earlier, if they didn't come up with something that was really unique, they were going to lose the business. So the first 90s I ever rode uh, was one Steve had access to. I've ridden really strong out ones, a Butler Smith bike, one of Rob Norris bikes, which uh, I think Evan Bell still owns. These were custom-built bikes that pioneered and went to the very first superbike races. There's a famous picture of Steve McLaughlin on his first Rob North bike, and basically he's on the bike is upside down, and his head is near the dirt where he's he's in midair. They took this picture. Oh, I think I've seen that photo. Yeah, I I think I have indeed. Yeah, go ahead. Was pretty interesting. We used to. His dad owned a Honda shop in Doherty, and it was just down the street from from a BSA Western. <clears throat> so this all this stuff was right in one little pocketed area, which was amazing. And um, you know, I, I was dodging the Vietnam War at the time. <laughs> my, my son saved me on that deal. But, but the bottom line of the ninety S is, I basically realized that I, I, if I was going to own one, I was going to keep it and make it as modern as I could because I knew where all the weaknesses were. So that was a project. And so the minute I bought that bike, it came home and came completely apart. The engine went up to San Jose BMW, and I knew what they were going to do. They just simply had a blueprint, a motor, perfect. And uh, then between stuff I put in with Matt, and we got into all these other things that we we built for them and uh, cross-drilled cranks and things that they could sustain at higher RPM. The way they got the power, if you ride an IDS, any of these the stock ones made really sweet bottom end torque and 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 once they crossed that one point they just they just ripped up good and when you, if you go ride in germany that's how germans ride you take off from the signal and they take off and they just rev it up and, and they, they accelerate hard full throttle and get up to speed and then back off that's how you ride them use the torque and uh it, it, it's always been a the quality of the motorcycle was so high it was a pleasure to work on it and it wasn't too many people that had the opportunity to experience them because they were cost a lot of money. There weren't an awful lot of them around. And most of them stayed in Europe, quite frankly. Yeah, so, and when and when you're working on a 90S for a, re, a restoration project, uh, as, as we both know, and everybody who's fans of these bikes know, um, you know, you basically got the three-year uh, model run, the early 73, 74, the 75-year model, then the last year, 76. So talk a little, I mean, we don't have to go into uh, minutia detail. I mean, there's a lot of unique differences on each of those year models, but uh, when you're... I can, I, can, I can sum it up really easy for you. Yeah, 73s, go ahead. 
the 73, the basic engine layout, uh, the pistons, uh, all the pro- all, all the technology went in and material technology went into the motors, never changed from 1970. 1970 was a paramount new design motorcycle. Forget the roller-bearing motors. Everything before that was toothpaste. They were beautiful and they're smooth, but that wasn't it. The new motor was designed to be by the automotive division, and that's why it had the kind of mall pistons and and the head designs and and everything associated with it. It's a very 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 robust motor. You can't kill it. Short of just knocking a cylinder completely off the thing, and uh, they have excellent internal oiling systems. Um, the oil it, not only lubricates the engine, but it, all that oil cools the engine. And they were just extremely, you know, think of it as an airplane motor. You open an airplane, an airplane engine, and I basically worked on private airplanes. They're extremely high quality. They're designed to not fail because when they fail, it's death. And and so the, the BMW approached it from their automotive division and they built a brilliant motor. So any motor from 73 on, um, it, it just got better. And the very first motors didn't have um, needle bearings, for example, on the rocker arms. They had bushings. But you know something? The next year, they, when they went to that, all that's convertible. You can take the newer parts and bolt them right onto an old motor, and you just improve the quality and reliability of the most important part of the engine, the heads. Yeah, yeah, that's a really unique aspect uh, to BMW's uh, as opposed to a lot of different motorcycles. Uh, I've talked to a few guys uh, in this podcast, and, you know, another great example of that is I've got an R80 GS and 81, uh, which you uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, and I wanted to upgrade the front suspension a little bit, but I didn't want to go with, uh, you know, motocross or that type of suspension. And for me, what made a lot of sense was just to use the next-generation uh, Paralever uh, GS front end, uh, which essentially bolts right on. Of course, you had to change the front wheel uh, and the caliper and stuff like that, but that's always been a hallmark. And I think one of the things that have helped propel these bikes uh, into folks just riding them and using them for so, so many years is the parts interchangeability and the ac- easy access uh, to upgrades throughout the throughout the model range. Yeah. The paralever, incidentally, is actually the rear Rear end, not the front end. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I just always kind of refer no. to those as the paralever bikes. Yeah, um, but, but, one, but the one, of the, one of the best things you can do to an older bike is you convert it to dual disc brakes. It used to be cheaper, and it's more difficult now. But I've converted quite a few of them. You get, it, it takes you have to find all the parts, and you have to go to dual disc brakes, and you have to get that master cylinder from out from underneath the gas tank and go to the handlebar mm-hmm. mount. But all is all the advanced newer parts that were redesigned could be adapted to the older bikes up to a point. Yeah. So that made them better. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, so let's say uh, you were doing a a 74, a smoke silver uh, 74 or early uh, late 73 or whatever. If you were doing a restoration on that, would you use the busher rock bushing rocker arms or would you go back or would you go with the needle bearings there? No, actually, it's funny. In '73, when the bushings were there, and at the end of the near the end of the run, they always start building new models and put them. In, they put them on the production line around mid uh, September. Let's see, about middle of summer, towards no later than like uh, uh, 
end of summer, we'll say, is by then they're in production. They phase them in, phase them out on serial numbers and everything. But what they do is they, um, they, they, they have to use up as many parts as they have to build the last group of bikes, and then they have to keep a provision for spares. So the factory always kept a certain number of spares, so they always had to, they had to support the production of all worldwide bikes. Um, and, and I know a guy who worked at the factory. Uh, Hunt, uh, his name is uh, Matthias. Anyway, you, you can adapt that stuff back and forth. And the bushings, most guys that had slash fives, and, and after they'd had it in the shop a couple times and they're getting tired of the how loud the rocker arms made a lot of noise because the bushings wear. When they went to needle bearings, they used obviously hardened shafts and uh, needle bearings. Torrington type needle bearings, and that quieted it down a lot because the valves, um, as they get hot, they expand, and they just had loud, um, loud uh, sounds coming out of the valves all the time because of the, of the design. The needle bearings quieted everything down because they could tighten the tolerances. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. One of the tricks that we, Matt and I uh, did, we came up with the um, chromoly push rod. They're not, they're not chromoly. They're special steel. The, 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 the actual push rod is tubular, but it's made of a, the, the right steel with a proper expansion rate, linear expansion rate. So as the motor's cold, there's a certain amount of, uh, normally you put uh, a, a gap or a, a feeder gauge in there and determine how much clearance you want on each of the push rods, usually four thousandths and eight thousandths. Well, with the chromoly push rods, the, the steel replacement push rods, they are chromoly, they basically expand exactly the same as the cylinders. So you set them at spin tight. And if you don't know this, if you set them up wrong and a spin tight is set up with a lash, it's going to make noise and it's not going to work right. So all my bikes have the, the replacement push rods. Nobody makes them anymore. But basically you just set it to spin tight. 
this bentite business is something that the English did too. And uh, the, on some motorcycles, uh, Bruff Superior had that kind of an idea also. You just set them spin tight, but you have to match the material so it expands the same. Yeah, let me jump in there. So in case somebody's not familiar, and may, and so I'm understanding this, right? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So you go in, you're setting the valves uh, on one side of the bike. You're at top dead center or whatever. You're on the left on the left side. And basically, you're just feeling that the push rod when the valve, uh, when the engine's at top dead center, you're feeling the push rod there and making sure it spins uh, and is moving freely. Uh, and so you're saying the adjustment there uh, is to check for that movement and not necessarily the gap. Yeah, no gap. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and they're oil. You can they spin. They just spin, and there's no, there's no, basically no clearance. I mean, if it's too tight, it, you can feel resistance. Just set them. You probably have in reality five tenths to a thousandth clearance there, but you just spin it. You spin it. Uh, you do it on the compression stroke of each cylinder. Do the right cylinder first, then 180 degrees in the engine. Do the yeah. left side. So all four of these push rods, they're not marked. You don't know what they are. You have to know what the, I've got the part numbers and how they were packaged. Every once in a while, I, if I find a set, but every one of my airheads, I, I have personally and kept all have those in there and I had an extra set too. And uh, that was one of the most important hot rods. Plus, they're extremely stiff and very, they're, they're not aluminum. They actually want to be strong in, in, in compression because that's how they're, they're absorbing it. When you push the rod out, you're compressing it. So they want to be made out of chromoly, which is a very stiff, high tensile strength material. Yeah, huh. they were, That was one of the, the products anybody who owned a BMW should have put that in right away. Interesting. That lightweight flywheel. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I get the concept there. I had an old uh, Harley-Davidson Ironhead Sportster for a while, and that was... Oh, yeah. That's basically how you would uh, set the uh, adjustment there. You just did them spin tight and forget about it. Yeah, it was an HK, HKA, HK, um, what's it called? HK, the early sport, one of the first flathead, 1955 sports, really valuable bike now. Yeah. But the KHK it was called. And uh, they they have a lot of expansion because of the cooling system. Uh, but the automotive did that, too, for a lot of years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was straight eights were that way. I did those when I was, you know, my dad taught me to do that when I was like 10 years old, set those things. So back to the 90S and some of the year-specific things. So I bought a, um, a 75 model uh, a couple years ago. I think it was 2019. It's a 1975. It was built in January of 75. So we were talking about production runs there. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think like August was when traditionally Germans and the BMW factory would have their holiday month. And then I think you right, you're going a month, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. So September uh, was when they sort of restart in earnest, I guess, maybe on the, uh, the year model or whatever. But anyway, so mine was a uh, January 75 uh, Daytona orange. Uh, I bought it. It had uh, about 29,000 miles on it. Uh, still all the original paint so it had the pinstriper signatures inside of the inside of the fairing on the tank and then the tank and inside on, the fairing and right. on the on the seat cowl as well yep. uh, there's Back one in there quite often so all done by women yes exactly and so anyway uh basically you know the bike had 
uh, been well cared for, but it hadn't been ridden much. So it basically needed all the seals replaced, rear main seal, you know, typical things, fork rebuild. Anyway, point I'm getting to is when I was ordering parts for it, um, there were a lot of considerations. I had to take pretty detailed notes and double check to make sure I was ordering the right part, uh, specifically on a couple things, because as we were talking about there, those, the way the parts change over due to either upgrades or availability or using the remaining stock, there were some years, 75 was a big transition year by my count. I was, you know, two things I got screwed up on, even though I was trying not to, were the flywheel bolts uh, and the neutral switch, um, yep. both, you know. So I thought I was in the sweet spot for on both of those for the like the earlier version of it. But in fact, my bike had the later version, uh, the, the post, I think it was uh, September was the line of demarcation for a lot of changes on that on that model in 75. But nonetheless, my January build still had a few of those later parts, which I found unusual. I know the bike hadn't been opened up. So when you're going through these restorations on, on your 90S, uh, just talk to me a little bit about some of those other things like that that you have to be cognizant of. Okay. Uh, first of all, anybody doing this better get their hands on on uh, the, the BMW R90S book and the one called the Bible, both of them were written by the same guy. And yeah, uh, Ian Falloon, I think, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, he's a, he's he's a very detailed guy, and he had help from a couple other people. What happened is on the '75, the '74s, they had weaknesses, and 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 that last '74 that I built, that one that I sold with the gold one to the one client, um, that basically bike had been delivered at the factory, lightly ridden, very low mileage, and parked a long time. I had that bike a long time, and before I even – I saved it for the last bike to do. It came out brilliant. I was I would have kept that bike, but um, I was very aware that uh, if you rode it, like I said in that little one message, you better be prepared. The brakes were not very good on those solid disc 74s at That's all. They only got better, but I made them a lot better than that on all my bikes. But anyway, what happened is in April – of that of 75 they made major changes in the front of the motor that had to do with the base castings that carried uh, the, the the electrics and and how they supported the front bearing and stuff like that those drove other changes in the bikes so the later bikes built after april i think there's a, there's one production run uh in the in ian saloon's book they talk about the model numbers and you want to get the latest one you can get and that, but it did drive changes in in the front of that motor. There were weak spots that were showing up, even though the bikes were if they were used for normal riding and and probably not racing or anything like that, they probably were fine. Uh, most guys changed their oil pretty rapidly. Got to remember the oils that were available back in those years were high uh, zinc. Zinc's a very magical thing when it comes to lubricating uh, plane bearings, and then it kind of all started moving out. And so, but the guys that own these bikes got them service rated. They used high zinc oils. And you can tell when you open one of these engines up, you can look, there's things you go to look for. When you go to take one of these engines apart, initially you pull the cylinders off and uh, you, you go in and look at the valve covers, or excuse me, the valve lifters. The surface of the valve lifters, if the engines have been properly 
serviced and lubricated properly, they're going to look like mirrors. They're actually not flat. They're actually con convexed, so they'll spin. But they sit off center, as you well know, and so that they wear evenly. But the secret was servicing the bikes and taking care of them. The front of the motors, there was a bunch of changes, and those things all got better and better. And by 76, they had it really figured out. Because, And the reason why is they were already well into the R100 motor design. Same motor with a lot of improvements and, uh, and enhancements in even materials. And uh, especially around the valve geometry, a lot of the valve geometry changed because the valves were always so noisy, as you know, when they fire them up and as they get running, normal push rods are kind of noisy. It's just the way they are. The aircraft engines aren't, but the motorcycles were. So they got better and better and better. And by 77, the R100 motor came along, and quite frankly, the R100 motor was a more civilized, uh, almost automotive-like motor in, in its power delivery and its reliability and and the, the amount of noise it made. They had to start passing in various countries like the United States, basically audible tests, which would uh, keep the sound level down. Yeah, hence the uh, the CFO versions uh, in 78 and, uh, and whatnot. Well, CFOs were, uh, yeah, and, and that's the big thing, the emissions from California. Right. CFO stood for California, Florida, and Oregon. All right? Yeah. That's... And it's stamped on a dipstick, but there was 100 bikes brought in, and the United States, uh, although I know there's one that's, that was brought in and never had, it, it's actually not marked CFO, and it, it was, it was, what is it? No, it, 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 it is an original one of the 100 that were brought into the United States, but it was never marked properly. It doesn't say CFO on it, and the guy didn't know that. And uh, I was able to buy that bike really cheap. He had no idea what he had. It doubled the price of the bike. Yeah. But Germany had all, they kept all those in Europe. See, we don't we don't consume very many motorcycles in the United States even today. And most people, a lot of people, don't even like motorcycles now. But uh, they're all in Europe. Go, go to go to Barcelona, Spain, and you'll see every year they consume five hundred thousand scooters, and go buy a new one. How they get around? Yeah, Germany, Switzerland, uh, not England so much, but the rest of Central Europe is all motorcycles. I mean, and that's where they say you, you can see nice MZs all day in Italy. You never see them here, you know. It's uh, it's amazing the difference in, in culture. It is no, it really is. But so yeah, I, I, I they were the best of the bunch. Actually, I, I like them a lot, and they had enough. But those those changes i believe rolled in you said it was i think it was april but maybe it was i think it's still april i have to go back to the book but you're right those important those were important changes that took place yeah they were in fact you know i've I've mentioned you know ordering parts when i was refreshing mine and you know a lot of folks use the max bmw parts fish and they do a pretty good job of you know making some notations there. Uh, I, a lot of times I would see September 75 would be a cutoff uh, for a lot of different things. So, you know, prior to or after to 975 seemed to be a line of demarcation for a lot of things. But still, there were still naturally going to be some variations anyway, as, as I found out. And for folks who are, you know, listening to this and are interested in buying an R90S maybe for the first time or starting to look at buying one seriously, uh, 
you know, there's, as you mentioned, the, the later model run, late 75 and early 76 and on through 76, those mechanically and design-wise, uh, probably the best of the bunch, uh, no doubt about it. And I've even seen some pictures, uh, some of the later 76 models where they even had some of the recessed gas caps uh, that you would later okay. later see on the R on the R one hundreds, but let's let's be clear though the entire model run you know if you're looking for a bike and you find one at a price point that you like uh, and it's got a good maintenance history they're all still enjoyable bikes and they can all for the most part be uh, upgraded and turned into something that's still going to be a reliable machine. Yeah, the motors were the big thing. That the, the yeah. big changes all took place in the motors. Uh, the gas here's the gas tank, the gas tank problem. They ran out of parts. They only had so many tanks made, and that tank was basically became an R100 tank, as you know. But a real 90s tank basically is uh, is going to have the the chrome cap on top, and uh, that was. Uh, there were bikes delivered. Um, there's a guy in California who died recently. that was uh, one of the judges at all of the, the events, and he owned a really nice seven, late 76. And it came with the flat style. It was an R100 tank, basically. Yeah. And it, But he also went back and bought, and they gave him a deal. He, he had a brand-new correct tank with a chrome cap. Same tank, same capacity, and everything, and they were, they were even painted, they painted and striped underneath, like they should be in most cases. And uh, he, and that bike now resides at uh, uh, Receiver Motorcycles in his collection. But he's got both gas tanks. Oh, that's it. neat. Yeah, yeah. Nice, n- neat bit of uh, little both silver smoke on both of them. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, kind of neat. So they, that's just parts. They just they ran out of parts, and so it's just like at the end of that production run when they stopped building what we'll call the, the classic 1970 through 1975 BMW R100 R90s uh, with their 5.6s. A lot of those interchangeable parts. They were just running out of parts, and that and they they had enough for spares provisioning per the bylaws of the country that make them do that, and they basically moved ahead into the R100s. And uh, I've always liked 750s. One well, of my favorite bikes is uh, at Butler Smith. They had a bike that was sitting in the showroom for years. And it was uh, basically when they went to shut the building down, it was a, a 1976 R90, excuse me, R75 slash 6 with the LE version, which was a limited edition. I was able to buy that bike. A uh, guy who originally owned it. Uh, he bought it from them when they closed the place down. It was brought to California. He never rode the bike. He he had it cleaned, serviced, and decommissioned and put it in his office when he started a business. Years later, he, when he got older, he sold the company, and I bought the bike. And, uh, and everything came with the correct toolkits, manuals, everything, real mileage. I still have it. It's one of the lowest mileage bikes I own. Wow. And it's one of my favorites. So what... And, uh... What, let me jump in there. What was the, so you used the term there? Le was that something? Limited, limited yeah. So was that something actually specific, or did it just get that over time and lore? What what made that the case? It was basically built by the factory as as a display bike for the for the East Coast distributorship of oh, Smith. Gotcha. And it, sat in the, it never was written. It, I mean, it was probably started and serviced and everything, but it sat there for years and never got sold. Black, white, pinstriping, big tank, all the options, every option hmm. they had on it. 
and the uh, gauge pack, uh, dual disc brakes from the factory, a full. They make they made a kit, and I, I and this bike has it on there. They made a special uh, 308 stainless polished stainless kit of all fasteners that went on that motorcycle wow. unique to it, and this bike has all that on there, polished stainless, and uh, just all the. It, Here's all the accessories you could have ordered if you would have wanted to do it. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's neat. And you know there weren't that you didn't see those in uh, that year model, especially the slash sixes in in black, if I'm not mistaken. So that was uh, a unique color. And then you mentioned the gauge pack, so you had the voltmeter and the clock, uh, all the stainless steel fastening. Wow. That's that's a neat bike. So you still you still got that. Yeah, I'll send you a picture. It's yeah. beautiful. It's yeah. only got when I got it, it, it was very low mileage. I think I've got it around thirty thousand miles now, but I've had it a long time. But uh, it's one, it's one of the few I'd keep. Well, I got a couple couple of bikes I'd keep in my garage. One's my my R eighty R eighty. It's R, actually an R eighty ST. But uh, the minute I bought it, like my first one, I brought it home, took it all apart, and started messing with it. It's been an erector set. It's got the absolute best parts on it. That all BMW stuff, that all the improvements and things that that you can, can't even get anymore, they're in there. You know, cross drill crank and a light, you know, flywheels, all the tricks that make it that much nicer. I even have Beehive valve springs, and I had them custom made for it. Wow. Wow, that sounds like a yeah, that's a real beaut. So I want to talk about I want to talk about um, paint, uh, particularly on the ninety S. Yeah, we all know, you know, for fans of that bike, myself included, uh, that really probably stands out as one of the most unique characteristics and probably one of the most enduring characteristics of of that bike are those paint jobs. Uh, and so we all know the early models had the gold pinstripe, uh, tape as opposed to actual paint pinstriping, but, uh, it's, it's, it stands the test of time as a truly unique paint job. And what I want to ask you about is, uh, doing a restoration and doing a repaint. So I'm from the belief that, again, this is for me, when I was shopping for a bike, uh, for a 90s, I wanted one with original paint. That was just something I I, I just prefer that. Now, I was lucky enough to grow up or went go to college in Athens, Ohio. And when I mentioned Athens, Ohio, a lot of folks should know that's the home of Kent Holt uh, and Holt, yep. Holt BMW, indeed, who is yep. a spectacular painter. Uh, and so, point being here is to to properly repaint an R90S is a difficulty level of 9.9, I think, uh, to really get it right. I've, you and I have seen probably seen a lot of bikes over the years. You still see them for sale today where they're, some of them are just terrible. Uh, and it's really disappointing to see that. And especially knowing somebody has spent their hard-earned time and money to try to restore a bike only to have, you know, probably the most important of it important part of it come out poorly. So in your restorations, uh, tell me from your point of view, how do you get that paint job right? And tell me some of the guys you've worked with to make sure that happens. Well, to start with years ago, the first 90S I bought, uh, I still have. And uh, I, I had a couple other bikes at the same time. At one time or another, I had to have uh, a 
I built a bike from scratch, and I had it custom painted. And when I had it custom painted, there was a man named Damon Ritchie, and he knew Dean Jeffries. And I'd known Damon Ritchie for years because his mother was an artist, and my mother was an artist. They knew each other. That's how I found him. He died years ago. I have, I just recently, there's two bikes I sold. I told you the guy in Florida, he bought a lot of stuff from me, undisclosed amount. And one of them was a complete paint job he had done for me for an IDS. His, his, his bikes were, uh, his paint jobs were spectacular. He was a striper and he had a surfer dude that was painted the stuff. The surfer dude was a little unreliable, but he also knew what he was doing. Now, one thing about paints, years ago when all this stuff was happening, paints weren't waterborne or water-based. They were all lacquer and, and solvent-based. And now that's a no-no because of a pollution, air pollution, and you have to have controlled environments and booths to spray all this stuff, especially in California because of the air emissions. So what happened is um, those paints... Uh, were taken off the market and replaced in the last 10 years, I believe, maybe a little later than that. But um, to be obviously, when BMW did this, they did it in a factory with big equipment. They were shooting lacquer-based paints, toxic materials, and the tanks were all striped by women. That's true. And But initially, the tape, here's the story in the tape. There's two holes, and very few people know this, because I know this because I actually knew a guy at the factory that worked there. On the bottom of the fairing, underneath, on the Euro bikes, there's two holes underneath the headlight. Yeah. Two holes, they call them mystery holes. There's no mystery to it. Here's what it is. Before they could develop a system to hand stripe them using women, they basically, that was not a negative, religious women are more detail-oriented and art, these were artists. They basically had those two holes put in there to hold the fairings in place so that they could repeatedly stripe these things in the same situation where they're comfortable and they could do this quickly. And they just put them down on a little fixture that went past them and held the fairing in place. When they got done with it, they initialed it. Sometimes they didn't. Um, they would pass it on and they do another fairing. And once they got... But, but they weren't striping them with brushes. They were putting tape on them. And that's where the tape came from. It held them in place. It was a simple aided fixture to allow them to put the tape in place when they went around and taped all these in place. When they finally transferred and started striping them, they still kept the holes there because it made it easier. They don't have to hold the thing. It would be held in one place and they could, they could easily put their elbows down and get the radiuses right and everyone would come out within a range. Wow. That's an interesting story. And that's essentially like an artist's palette. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. You got it. And that's how they did it. And they, they painted the tanks similarly, too, although I think they flipped the tanks around. But I do know that with the holes in the fairing were all about. And I think I've written this. You know, I've published a lot of data and shared it with people. And, uh, and, and a lot of this stuff, I just by hook or by crook or by knowledge found out. Most of this stuff were figured it out, too. Actually, I was in Munich a couple of years ago, and uh, BMW is a fabulous place to go through. They offer really great tours, even today, of the cars and everything. And Steve, uh, Steve McLaughlin's race bike that won the very, very first motorcycle superbike race is there on display. I've heavily photographed the bike. Very <laughs> unusual, all the mods they made on the thing. Yeah. Which I can share those if you want. 
Yeah, I'd love I'd love to see that. But anyway, so back to the 90s paint job. So yes, back then there was light was lacquer solvent solvent based paint. So uh, moving ahead, you know, more modern times, you're getting an R90s painted for a customer or one of your personal restorations. So how is that how is that done properly by your estimation in modern times? Problem, I think, I sense Smith. The problem nowadays is getting a guy that a knows what he's doing and can paint and has the right equipment, a booth, and and has uh, has has a sensitivity to what he wants to do. Paint is extremely expensive. The paint to paint an IDS is about eight hundred dollars. Then you have to color mix it. What I do is I've had for years is get your hands on original, nice quality fenders. And what they look like, the, the big thing, especially on the silver smoke version, is the hue and the letdown. I've seen more guys try to duplicate that, and it comes out so bad that you just, they literally have it done again by somebody else. At the same time, there's guys that can get it pretty close, but you need a sample. So I always kept pieces and bits. If you've got a broken fairing, that's okay. If it's got the correct hue and it's a tool, it's something you can use it for reference to get it right when you do have it painted. Fenders, the same thing. Side covers, the same thing. And they want to be matched. Because I've seen bikes done, and the hues are off from part to part, and they're not correct to a real 90S paint job. But there's one thing you have to plug into this. Hans Moose concept is that this was going to be a unique paint job done by an artist, and everyone's going to be a little different. And that's what gets people all wrapped around the axle. They think it has to be all the same. But no, as long as they all painted painted with it by by the person who puts their touch on it, we'll say they can be different from bike to bike to bike. The hardest, of course, is silver smoke, and the Daytona Orange isn't easy, but it's easier. There's one guy I have locally who will paint a bike and has samples, and I've given him my samples to match, and he can do it. It. Getting him to do it takes some time, sometimes six months, something like that. And it's going to run you about at least, at least 3000 to $3,500, $3,600 for all the pieces. Well, you care to give him a plug here? Yeah. His name is Steve Van Diemen. And he's online. And he's a, he's a local guy in, in uh, Orange, California. And he, 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 he paints things nobody else would attempt to paint. And he's a brilliant guy. And he's a, he's a nice guy, too. And um, he can paint a, a silver smoke or an orange with equal, uh, you know, accuracy, we'll call it. And um, he's usually always available. The problem is, is getting the paint is expensive. Finding a guy that can do it and do it right is, is also going to be uh, time-consuming and expensive. But got to remember, everyone's going to be a little different. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. One thing, when I bought mine, uh, and I mentioned it, it is a, a factory-painted bike. I sent some pictures to a, a buddy of mine who's an artist and a photographer. And the first thing he noticed, and it might have been sort of the, maybe the camera I used or the specific light uh, or just sort of the surroundings. First thing he noticed, and I never uh, picked this out, but there's also hues of, of green in there as well uh, in the Daytona orange, I'm saying, um, that the original painted bikes will show in certain light. And that's always been kind of a telltale uh, for me. 
as opposed to some of the ones you see that are not necessarily correct. Uh, the the blend uh, between the silver and the orange, there are some other hues that ended up coming out of there, whether that was over time, whether it was the paint faded, or like I said, depending on the light uh, and where you act, how you actually take the photograph. But the, the ones I've seen that you've done uh, and some of the photos uh, of your restoration bikes and the, and the fellow you mentioned there, Steve, they're just, they're really top notch. I've not seen any, anyone better aside maybe from Holt and I think maybe Bob Wark, uh, who's also in Ohio at one time did some, and I'm sure there's some other guys, we might be leaving some folks out, but there, it's, uh, there are a hand few, hand full of people who can do it correctly. Yeah, that's it. And see, the concept that Muth, Muth had, Muth's an interesting guy. I mean, he's 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 a psychological guy too. He he's real interesting. Um, if you, there's some interviews out there with him, but but he, he I think he's still alive. He is. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was at he was at a, at a meet I went to a couple of years ago. Anyway, but the thing is about paint scent. All those bikes that were painted in the '70s were painted with solvent-based paints. Those are gone. Now, solvent-based paint, solvent paints, uh, uh, a, you put them in sunlight. And have you ever seen a poorly um, uh, sun-exposed 90S? Yeah, that or the worst were the uh, 1977 S's that just seemed to fade. Uh, R100 yes, and red. Those were terrible, yeah. They go, yeah. They go pink, silver, and all. Because what happens is, the chemistry of of that of the materials and the resistance to UV, which sunlight, it gets everything. That's why we all get cataracts, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, it goes after them, and the solvent materials weren't pure. And who knows what Pittsburgh and these other people? The best paint out there is House of Color, and every bike I've built that I had to have repainted, Steve always uses House of Color paint, and it's a thousand dollar problem for the material. Wow. Well, that's good to yeah. know. That's good to know. So also along those lines, I wanted to ask you on your restorations, the uh, the classic paint versus powder coat on the frame, where do you fall there? Well, every new BMW I bought in the early years was lacquer, frame painted, black, black lacquer. Now, they, they can't get black lacquer and have it done anymore. Powder painting, I remember, I remember as an engineer I was working, what was I working on? Um, I, I worked in the medical device business and lots of other business, including firearms. Uh, the first powder paint product I ever saw was a boat steering system for a race boat company in California, Warlock, that was around. And I had designed a high-speed uh, system for him and a, and a guy in San Francisco that had artisan drives in his boat. These are like malt maker propellers hanging out the back for, for these high-speed offshore boats. They were using powder paint, and I, I went and did a whole bunch of homework with it, and I ended up using it on some electronic devices, uh, Printronic printers. I, I helped start a company called Printronic today. I basically designed most of their big products, and I use powder as an insulator, but it's powder paint, and, still, and uh, like 2,000 stick of powder paint will has a very high electrical resistance, and we use them on a hammer bank for a magnetic triggering system. That's so how I learned about it. Powder paint is hard to control the thickness of. If you know how it's put on, they charge the they they clean the parts, they charge the parts, they hang them up, and then they they basically deposit 
electrostatically the paint, and then they bake it at 355 degrees for an hour, and you can't get it off, you know. And it's neat for for high-production things like motorcycle frames and all these other things. Most all automotive work is, except for the exteriors now, are all done with waterborne paints. It amazes me how good the new paints are, quite frankly. Look at the look at the cars. Yeah, right. And so you so yeah. on a restoration, you're going to go uh, with I'm paint over. Paint. I, I've done a powder painting before, and, and for a bike, you should going to ride. It's perfect. You can't protect a battery box much better than powder paint and things like that. Well, you can stainless steel, but um, yeah, it, it's it, they've just gotten better. And you know something, I think. To me, it's overkill to try to go back and use lacquer on something like that. Leave it to the hot rodders who go to car shows and stuff because you can manipulate it after you – it's multi-coat and you end up rubbing it down to a point where it's like a mere powder coat. You don't do that. You know that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a way to protect it from corroding. Yeah. And you got to get it clean to start with. Yeah, that's right. It's just a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, there's, I've, I've never, I've never saw as creating art when you restore something. Uh, yeah, there's you go to the best car museums in the world and the best uh, aircraft museums and places like that, and and sure you can see beautiful artwork all day long. But the reality of it is, it's just a machine, you know. And so, is the older you get, heck, we all get scars, we all get cataracts, we all get discolorations, you know, and it's part of aging. I like the age look. Yeah. And at 74 that I sold to this guy, I, I, I'm ridiculous amount of money for that bike. And it was so perfect, even the way it was. I wanted to keep it, but I just can't. Yeah. I just can't. I don't have time, room, or I got other things to do. Well, you bring up uh, a good transition to my next uh, topic is bring a trailer. Uh, and that really here in the past, Three years, maybe four years, has become the pre- one of the premier auction sites for all kinds of classic motorcycles. Everybody who's listening to this probably knows about it by now. But anyway, um, as somebody who's been buying and selling bikes, uh, classic BMWs, uh, for a number of years, A, first off, I assume you're familiar with the website a little bit, and B, what do you think, uh, How is how are some of the prices which have uh, on, on some bikes, uh, have really gone into the stratosphere. How, how do you see that uh, affecting the hobby, uh, you know, for normal guys going forward? Well, you know, I think what drives this as a lot of people, I'm a practical guy too. I just know you have so many days in your life and, and uh, you only have so much. You, you, here is an example. I've, I put a, put a bike together, a gorgeous 90S, Completely Damon Ritchie paint job and everything, and it was on a fairing I bought it in a Swiss motorcycle shop, shipped it to the United States, spent a year developing mounting systems and put it all together on a bike. And and at the same time, I was building a leaning sidecar for it that I designed and built. And uh, when you get all this stuff done, it's still just a motorcycle. And what's going to happen is the first time you go out and ride it, you're going to be following somebody, and a rock's going to hit it and put a big chip in it. I guarantee it. That's right, yeah. I guarantee it. So if you want, and I've done stuff for guys that basically are private individuals who own private collections, and they want it perfect. But you know something? They never ride the bike. It's art. Hang it in the wall. What's the point? It could be full. The engine could be empty. Wouldn't have to have any parts in it. Because they're so uh, 
tight or nervous about damaging it, or it doesn't meet specifications in their mind or what they expect. They want perfection, and they don't really care too much about it being anything more than artwork because they're, they're afraid to ride it. You know? Yeah, no, I, there's... Or put miles on it. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's a... There, I agree. There's a, you know, there's... Something to be said for a show bike versus a rider bike. I mean, I'll always lean towards a, a patinaed rider bike uh, as opposed to one that's been perfectly restored. Uh, that's just where I fall on that. But I'm. Mean, have you f- seen some of uh, the bikes that have gone up on Bring a Trailer and some of the prices they're demanding? Does it surprise you? No, you know, I, 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 at this point, I don't pay much attention to it. I got enough stuff going on in my life. Yeah. Things I'm, I'm trying to do. I've got a huge library of things. I all these. I got extra BMW parts, and I'm selling off my 90s parts that I don't need. Duplicates. I'm just keeping enough in case I had an altercation on one of the four bikes that I kept. Can I fix it? I've got a part. I've, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm divesting myself of all that stuff. Make life simpler. Probably because of my age and my, and I have other interests. I still want to, you know. I once had a biplane. I didn't fly this thing much because I was always worried about this or worried about that. Finally, I realized I've taken. This is fun. I'm just going to use it, and I did. And when I was done, I got the same amount of money I would have had been perfect brand new. Yeah, yeah. So you brought up an interesting point there. So you've got uh, some parts you say you're going to be selling off. Uh, are, are, where that where can guys find those well, when you put them up? How are you going to get rid of them? Word of mouth or what? Well, you know, well, you know, I was going to probably put them up on a, on a, uh, if I had a source. I, I, I'm you know, you ever heard of the Airhead Club? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you got an Airhead number? Uh, I, I, a long time ago, I did. I haven't been uh, active on there in a while, but I, I did. Yes. Well, you know what my Airhead number is? I'm going to venture to say it might be a single digit. Seven. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, seven. And you know, I, I basically I still know Jan. I don't give him any money, but I, I, I'll always have the number. And but you, you can, but, but he always advertises stuff at the back. But he publishes the magazine and rare, you know, when he gets around to it and has the money to do it. So I don't care. I'll just find buyers for it if somebody wants to contact me. But I'll probably go with somewhere doing. I don't have a lot of stuff. Unique things that some people need, and I just pass them on it, you know, so they can use them too. That's good to know. That's yeah. good to know. Uh, all right, couple things, Mark, uh, and we'll wrap it up. And I really appreciate your time uh, today. Well, it's really I, I appreciate it. This is fun. Yeah, yeah, it's been really great visiting with you. Share knowledge. Uh, okay, yeah. so um, one thing I've been asking everybody in this series is their Mount Rushmore of airheads, so 70 to 95. We already know, let's just take for granted, the 90S is one of those on your personal Mount Rushmore. So what would the other three be? Well, I'm going to give you the hardest first. Okay. I doubt whether anybody, very few people will know this and um, and have the answer. Now, I'll give you all the answer now, and you can play the game with your friends. But what is the rarest standard uh, let me have a word. It's, this bike was was sold by BMW dealers only. It was the rarest of all the airheads. It was very, very limited in quantity and production. And it was only available one year. And And it had the smallest production run. And it came fully warrantied just like any other BMW model, from the factory and dealer. Can I take a guess? 
Okay, I'm going to say the 91R100R. No. Okay. No. I want to try another one. Uh, give me another hint. The frame was, it had an entirely different frame. Oh, okay. Um, and, and the complete drive line, the complete drive line on the motorcycle, everything warranted and everything was basically all standard R100. Was it a mystic? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, that's two strikes. Go ahead. You want to try a third out or what? Uh, I, I, so this, this, this is about short of telling you who it was. This is the closest I can get on it. it they, and it's in its name. It had three letters, not BMW. I give up. Krauser MKM. Oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Oh yeah, yes. Yes, the frame. I should have guessed. I should. I should have guessed. Yeah, and you know it's funny. The guy in, in uh, Los Angeles has three of them. Uh, I turned down. There was a brand new one sat at the local dealer's floor for a year and a half, two years. He, at one point, I finally said, "I'm tired of screwing you. You want to sell this or not?" He says, "Yeah." And, I, and then he says, "I said, give me your best price." He says seven thousand. I walked away. Stupid me. <laughs> I, I bought. I mean, I bought an MV, a, a real MV Augusta at fourteen, and I thought that was a lot of money, and I should have bought that one too. I didn't buy this thing because uh, I, two problems with it: zero parts, zero. And other than the mechanical drive line, there's no parts for any of those MKMs. If you drop it, fairing broken. There's no spares. There's only twenty five delivered in the United States. They are floating around in Europe along with other custom BMW manufacturers who build them over there. And I've, you'll see them in Germany and Switzerland. These guys have some pretty exotic custom frame airheads, not not the hot-rotted stuff the kids built with top fenders and things, but, you know, the really nice ones. Wow. See, but so you know where you, you got me there with the the – the full factory warranty was kind of a, a, a trick. It was. When they, well, get this. This is how they built that bike, real briefly. Yeah. BMW agreed to sell them the entire motorcycle with all the paperwork and everything. They all in all that all that Mike needed for his birdcage because it was a, a birdcage frame, complete space frame, we'll call it. And uh, he basically needed the headstock and the paperwork. So every bike that came to him, they cut the headstock off of it, and that headstock then went on Mike's frame as they built it, and the paperwork followed it through. Wow. I did not know that. They could legally sell them in all the countries. Yeah, and so... And 25 came to the United States. Yeah, and folks who aren't particularly familiar with those, those had the four-valve heads, uh, and with the sort of... that was his problem. Those yeah. are the worst thing. I personally know a guy who bought those heads, messed around with them for six months, and eventually ran an ad to swap them straight across <laughs> for a set of brand new R one hundred heads. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't That's really an wasn't really an upgrade necessarily, was it? It was not it was not properly developed. <laughs> it could have been, but it wasn't. I also was involved in Hall Tech with Matt Free. We tried to put fuel injection on bikes as an accessory and very few people built accessory type fuel injection systems. These people had done it for, for uh, aircraft engines, small aircraft engines, but they failed and it was way, way too expensive. 
Yeah. And it was a long time ago. So everybody's tried it. So. That's, that's right. That's right. You can catch people. Keep that to yourself. That's a good question to ask a group that, of people. Maybe <laughs> figure it out. That is a good one. Okay. So uh, the 90S, uh, the Krauser uh, uh, R100. Uh, okay. So two more on your uh, Mount Rushmore. Uh, well, you know, actually, I had, my dad had a, a 1960 R69, and it was a, a ivory bike that he he restored and, and left it more or less stock, took care of it. He rode it a bunch. And the bike was a very, very nice bike that had shitty brakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it never had a sidecar put on it. But you know some I kept that bike a long time, and it... And I never had a problem with it. Uh, it had magneto system in it and with battery, and it always it was easy to run. It, it, it got quite a bit of miles put on it, um, and you know I liked it a lot. It was real comfortable. It, it was a little overweight for what it was, and it. But you know it kind of represented the crossover point between BMWs being single cylinder, 500 cc stodgy and 250 bikes, and and, and a more modern motorcycle interpreted by, the, of course, the Slash 5s and um, later on. But it was very unique. And I, can, and I think today those bikes still hold their price. They're not ridden much. And they're actually beautiful works of art. And if you ever go to Munich and you get a chance to look around the museum and look at the beautiful examples of all the motors they made for aircraft and motorcycles, you, you, you kind of sweeten your heart to the whole thing. Yeah, that was a Paramount motorcycle. It was reliable. It, it, if you ever rode bikes out of the 50s like I had to, I mean, I only weighed like 120 pounds, but I could start a Royal Enfield uh 650 cc single i could start all those bikes because i knew how you know they had compression da- compression dampeners on them or releases on them and uh, and they were fun but they were a handful they had shitty brakes tires were terrible this was the worst part of riding motorcycles and the tires were not very good not very safe yeah they weren't i had a i had a slash two for a while uh when i was much younger and i was a little too inexperienced mechanically um, you know, it wasn't in the best shape when I bought it. I didn't really know enough about the motorcycles at the time. Those, uh, any motorcycle really to, I, I wasn't qualified to own it yet. Uh, I haven't had one since, but <laughs> well, so yeah, right, the motorcycle that, that was, that was a, ter- that was, you had to know what you were doing it to be more than a bicycle. You were, had to be prepared to change a tire. That's right. But it earned a tire anywhere. You had to be prepared to pull spark plugs. You had to be prepared for, uh, I've ridden and owned a bikes that were total loss oil systems. Yeah. That yeah. You got to pay attention to, you Big know, time. and and antiques and stuff. I, I mean, it did that for a lot of years too. My dad was into that stuff, and I've driven race cars and owned a lot of cool shit. But riding a motorcycle in the fifties, sixties, the fifties, because I started riding when I was, I got a license at fourteen, and and I had five or six motorcycles to ride, and and I've got shit. I never owned a car. Yeah, I was around. Yeah, I mean, I own race cars and stuff, but my wife has a car. But yeah, I've I've been riding 70, 60, 63 years now. Wow, good for you. All right, so we've got the 90S, the Krauser. 
We're going to have a special allowance uh, for a Dover White uh, R69S that falls just a little bit outside of the 247 range. And then one more, Mark, uh, on your top four BMWs. Okay, this is number one. Okay. When in 1980, in 1980, let's see, 1990, 1980, let's see, 19, uh, my wife and I got married in 1990. So in 1991, I went on an extensive trip in Europe, took my wife on a motorcycle trip. We were gone about two months. Um, and uh, there was a guy named Tom Desmond who had trips over there where you could ride bikes and cruise around Europe and do these things. He ended up uh, going to jail for a long, long time for moving drugs. But I was on one of his last uh, expeditions. And uh, I knew Kip, um, uh, the guy that used to be Forbes. You know uh, Malcolm Forbes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had met Malcolm Forbes and his son Kip, and he happened to go along on the trip with me. And uh, we were gone quite a while. It, it was an expensive trip, but I could afford to do it. And we rode um, different motorcycles over there. And uh, I, I was on a, a Suzuki 1100 packing my wife, who only weighed 90 pounds, and we never had trouble blowing people away with that thing. We had fun. But what was interesting, and the whole point was, is that uh, on that trip over there, we were able to meet people from different other countries, too, and their interests in motorcycles and everything. Well, I'm riding this big Suzuki uh, 1100 Tiller motorcycle, and when I was on the bike, unfortunately, I hate chains. I grew up around chain bikes, and I hate them. And, uh, and I said to myself one day, blasting over to the Alps, in this, actually it was in the, uh, in the Italian Alps, Dolomites, and I'm thinking, like, man, if I could buy a BMW that had a dry shaft like this, that would be the ultimate touring motorcycle. I would love that. So I get home from the trip, and uh, I'm still thinking about this, and I go up to the dealer, and here sits a brand new red K1, red and yellow, and a blue and, ye- and a blue and yellow, and um, and I said to the owner, Evan Bell, he done business with him since I was a kid. I said, uh, you gonna sell this bike? He says. Well, I did sell it. I said, really? He says, yeah. He said, uh, a guy that came up from San Diego um, who happened to invent armor all, he, uh, he came in, Alan Rapinski, and he says, Alan Rapinski bought it. And I said, well, how come it's here? He says, he left it. He, he, wants it. he wants this done to it, this done to it, a couple of things. And he says, he wants my son to put a few miles on it, break it in, and do the first service. He's going to pick it up on Saturday. And I said, really? So Saturday morning, I went to the shop, and uh, Alan Rapinski's there, and I meet him and everything. He says, well, I'm going to take this thing out and see what it is. And he was gone about 45 minutes. He goes back in. He says, he's a big, tall, long guy, right? He says, uh, well, Evan, I hate it. Sell it. And I said, I told my friend Sam, I said, I'm going to go talk to Evan. So I walked in, and, and Alan had already bought this bike, paid about damn near 15000 for this and, and everything on it. And, uh, oh, he had the first service done on that, too. Even though it was brand new, it, it was paid for. I ended up buying that bike, and I kept it for two years, and I did not modify it. And it was really good for one thing, going from one end of Nevada to the other at night because it was so hot to ride it. They put man- heat management kits in it and everything, but... Um, 
it was a really cool bike, and you're pretty nervous about dropping it or anything because there was like almost zero, it was like the MKM, not many spare parts available. And if you did, matching that paint might be a problem, even factory. And uh, bottom line is, I turned around and after 18 months, I put about 15000 on the thing and uh, a couple trips, and I sold to a guy in Japan for almost twice what I paid for it. Wow, good grief. And so that was uh, still a relatively new bike then when you sold it. 15,000 miles. Brand, it was brand new. Yeah. It was, yeah. zero miles. 15,000 miles. And uh, so you did that. You, I just wanted to check that in about 18 months. Yeah, I did. It, it, I think it had 18,000 when I shipped it. And they had to convert it to a different speedometer. And that was their problem. But I, 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 the guy paid cash for it. I shipped it out of uh, the port down here in Los Angeles. <clears throat> Never heard from him again. And I sold I've sold quite a few bikes, actually, overseas, Japan especially. Wow. That's a great story. Because I can't get them. That's a great story. Okay, two more okay, two more questions, Mark. Uh, here's one. So, and, hang on, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. All right. So let's keep this to airheads from 70 to 95. Tell me the one design change, if you could go back in time and tell the BMW engineers, don't do this on the airhead run, what would it be? Dual disc brakes from the go, hydraulic. <clears throat> Up front. Always, just standard procedure? Yeah, because the only way you can get brakes to really work good on your bike, you're going to ride, you're going to have to get... The Meonite discs are the best. They aren't available anymore, but I've tried aluminum plasma sprayed. They don't last. But modern brakes do. You go to break, uh, to any of the um, people, Ferrodo still makes it. <laughs> Ferrodo makes good pads. I like the pads. And the best disc were the Meonite cast iron discs. Or offered by Kufmeister, but other people make them. Any of the modern discs that you can buy now as replacement discs are yards and yards and yards above anything BMW had. Sure. And they kept the drum brake too long. And that's the one thing. Once you're it, 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 once you, once you you're stuck with the old brakes, and you can, like I said on that '74, the bike was really wickedly quick, and it was sneaky quick. You had no idea how quick it was. Why the '74 was that much faster? Probably it wasn't encumbered with other things that they kept putting weight on the bike. And uh, and the brakes were never, never very well, and you had to really pay attention. More modern bikes, no problem. There's always margin, unless you're really being stupid. And uh, they never had good enough brakes. The suspension, was, it was uh, we all know, had, they had long, spongy suspension, which people shortened. The bikes were a little too tall for most people because their legs weren't long enough. They must have fit Germans better. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think that was the case. Okay, final question for you. We've been asking everybody this. Uh, we've got a wide variety of answers. Um, what oil do you use in your airheads, Mark? Oh, they, they you put oil in them? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the deal on oil. Okay, go. All of these motorcycles, when they, as I mentioned earlier, use zinc-based oil. Excellent stuff. Can't get it anymore. Most of the bikes, one of the easiest things when you go to look and evaluate a bike, first thing you do is you check and look at the, the uh, when you get the pan off, you can tell. Because you ever pull a pan that's full of gooky, brown, black, sure. ugly stuff? Sure, sure. Modern oils 
have, uh, we'll call them cleaners, but they're, they're, they're such that they actually don't have deposits formed in them typically. And years ago, you always expected gookie stuff in pans. You don't see that with modern clean oils. And those new oils that came along, unfortunately, took the zinc away. But modern detergent, what they call oils, and everything we buy is that now, makes a huge difference. And it's much, much better than in the set. I don't use synthetic. Don't ever use synthetic oil in a BMW except the gearbox oil. It'll definitely leak, I guarantee it, past your gaskets. So I just use automotive grade I stay with what they recommend. I live in California, so I use usually the uh, twenty. Or, or you can use t- you can use ten, but I usually use twenty fifty oil as recommended. And the oils are so good now; that's all you ever need. Change your filter, um, and once one year, if you, if you don't ride more than like I ride everywhere, but uh, once a year or every six thousand miles, filter and oil. There you Keep go. Eye on your oil. All BMWs, even the Nicosil bikes, almost never use oil, especially the, the modern 1974s on like R80s on, R80s on things like that. One of the best motors they ever made, by the way. Um, they don't use oil. The Nicosil motors just don't do it, and yep. you won't ever have a problem. Well, excellent. So I'm glad I'm glad you said that because everybody has answered this question a little bit differently. So. That's good. We're you don't keep... need to spend a lot of oil. You're wasting money buying Delray and all these expensive oils. All you need is SAE, standard automotive grade, 2050. Now, if you live in colder weather sure. and, you, and you ride a bike, then you want to drop down. You can go in. I've ridden, I use 10, 1030s and whatever you can get. It doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be oil. The, fr- the thing you got to remember is oil is the primary job of that oil is to cool the motor and, and get more flow through between the bearing the, the rod bearings, for example, or the bearing areas, and and uh, and move, the, the amount of oil you can move through there, this more viscous oil, lighter flowing, is going to move remove more heat from that area than thicker oils, and the multi viscous oils do that. Excellent. So let me ask you this on the on the way out here. So, uh, it, do you have any presence on the internet? Uh, Instagram, Twitter, videos, or anything like that? Do you connect with folks or interact on the internet anyway? No, I'm pretty much a hermit. <laughs> people, people I like. Good for you. All right. So this is great. There's so few of us left. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Well, look, I'm glad we got a chance to visit today. Uh, I, I think you recalled when I sent you an email initially asking you about this. I had um, just inquired about paint. Uh, for a fairing, I uh, unfortunately my bike fell over because of the crappy BMW stock side stand. Uh, oh, worst feature in a BMW. You never asked me that. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, that, that's true. it. I, I think we can. You, me, and a lot of folks will agree. And you know, my bike fell over. The fairing got a little chipped. Uh, I ended up just taking the insurance money and banking it. I kind of touched up the fairing and just. Uh, I called it good. I, I've added some patina to the bike. I did did not end up repainting it. I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. But that's kind of where we originally uh, touch base. And so it's been great to catch up with you today. And just continued success in all you do. It, it's been a real treat visiting with you. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
What a wonderful chat and informative conversation with Mark. We're glad you spent some time with us this week. We look forward to visiting with you next time. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.